When the ladies are fed up with their leaking roof, they try to devise a plan to compile finances to get it fixed. But the roofer is a doofer, their money is funny, and their luck is far from great. Learning a pretentious and rude artist might be dying soon, they decide to invest their money in a painting of his to make the money needed for the roof. Unsurprisingly, things don't go as planned. Will the roof get fixed? Will Jasper de Kimmel survive? Will Blanche learn that she can just wash a towel? Oh my God, did she never wash that towel? Anyway, all of that and more in today's episode, The Auction. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. Oh, you're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance, and sing. And laugh just doing our things. No matter the mysteries that come and go. As this is our second auction to appear in just the last few episodes, I'm guessing a writer or two had been to one recently. How chic. The fog lingers into the morning after a storm in Miami, and Dorothy, in an extra-long purple floral sweater and casual light jeans, is coming in from getting the mail. As she takes a seat on the couch, Sophia comes in wearing a dress whose color can only be described as the dark moss that grows on a rock in a river, and a red cardigan. She's already feeling spicy as she was awoken by a puddle in her bed, which is really one of the worst ways to wake up. Vomiting is also quite terrible. One of the worst ways I've ever woken up was several years ago. My dog Buddy, who was like 100 pounds, uh, Newfie Lab, and he either was having an, I think he was having a nightmare or thought he heard a siren somewhere and it was very early in the morning. I thought we were both sound asleep and he just started wailing and it was so scary to wake up to from a deep sleep (laughs) that now 10 years later I'm like, oh, that was jarring. Oh, big dog. Big dog. And just a a huge one and you're in a deep sleep. I'm like, oh my God, the bomb's coming. It was terrible. I've definitely woken up in a puddle. And the puddle came from around back. Oh. A real sheet changer. That's horrible. It's not cool. That's that's bad. That wins. I was sick at the time. Hey, no judgment. And it was sick. <laughs> AF. I made us sick. It was like... Uh, we don't hmm, need details. Snake venom that had to come out. Your body was rejecting it. Fully. Yes, fully. Yeah. Sophia's puddle wasn't caused by what she thought it had been at first, which was herself. In a runner-up for another terrible way to wake up, the roof was leaking. When Rose encounters the ladies while carrying pink buckets, Dorothy asks if she, too, was a victim of the roof. Taking a note from Dorothy's attitude, Rose responds with a very snippy remark about milking her closet cows. Unlike Dorothy, Rose realizes her attitude, and with a stern look from Dorothy, She also realizes that in order to be as bitchy as she is, she just needs to miss about five hours of sleep. 
After apologizing, Rose begs for them to figure out what they can do to get the roof repaired. Conveniently, homeowner Blanche has entered the picture, wearing her baggy, jean-inspired pants and yellow boating jacket, and Dorothy is happy to bring up the roof because she knows how Blanche drags her feet with getting things done around the house. Luckily, the one thing that needs to happen in order for Blanche to care has occurred. She has been directly affected. Why, just last night, poor Ed Rosen was holding the Zorro mask he was intending to use for some kinky cosplay before it was ripped away by some of the caving-in roof. Sheesh. Three rooms with hearty leaks? They're lucky it didn't cave in on them. And they're in Florida. This seems like the makings of a sinkhole situation. And you know how I feel about those. Maybe you don't. They scare me and I hate them. And I don't understand them. What is a hole? Is a hole an actual item? When does it stop be- being a hole? The, does the road get built and then the hole starts happening? And then why does it go on forever? War of the Worlds, maybe. I just... They're under the ground. Tremors. Oh, that'd be fun. To be eaten by a subterranean-like oh, worm creature? I wish on the news it was, oh, there was another sinkhole in Florida today. And here was the tremor monster, and then it went away. You know, like, that's why it was caused. That'd be cool. That'd be nice, too, if the graboids, once discovered, would leave. Yeah, They just go somewhere else. (laughs) They're not grabbing everybody up. Instead of eating Melvin in the the market in that movie. (laughs) Melvin! What is his name? It's Melvin. Melvin, but what's the name of the dude who owns the market? Walter? Yeah. Yeah. Walter. (laughs) (laughs) He's the one that names some graboids. Insert clip here of... Walter. Of Walter leaving the earth. <laughs> so thankfully, because empathy lacking Blanche had a firsthand experience, she has already called a roofer. Right on time, said roofer has arrived. Playing Sid LaBasse is Michael McManus. You might not know Michael's name, but you have seen his face at least 72 times. Besides writing Mafia, producing it, as well as Hot Shots Part 2, you've seen him in Rhoda, Smokey and the Bandit, MASH, Laverne and Shirley, Dallas, Happy Days, Growing Pains, Newhart, Full House, Webster, Night Court, Coach, Saved by the Bell, Step by Step, Delta, according to Jim, and as the pesky neighbor with the disruptive remote in Poltergeist. That's what it is. Yep. When I saw his face, I knew I knew him. Yep. That's it. He's the guy who's eating that plate of beans. Yep. <laughs> and his little kid is trying to eat the beans off his plate. <laughs> and they have the remote control war. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Look, my TV's not on, so oh, no. you have a problem. No, 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 no. no. Ben, it's nothing like that. Uh, this is going to sound strange coming from me. Doubt uh, that. Um. Ben. <laughs> ben. <laughs> really sorry. Before Sid comes inside, he has to clean off something that he may have stepped on. I think I would rather have someone get specific in this case. Like, tell me it's gum so that I'm not expecting poop. After a hasty and half-hearted wipe on the welcome mat and feeling he has sufficiently, to his standards, removed the mystery shoe adhesion, he helps himself inside. Poo Shoe Sid has blasted past a stunned, just stunned, Blanche and is greeted by a very grateful Dorothy. Well, she should be lucky. He almost didn't come because his cold is so bad, but thankfully he has arrived and he'll be sharing it with their immune system. In fact, he's so stuffy his equilibrium, or balance, had him nearly falling off of his bed. 
but Rose is certain once he's up high on that roof, it'll help with that. Rose is still running on just three hours of sleep here. Maybe she sees how much this guy sucks and is like, why don't you go fall off a roof? I'm kind of liking this new Rose. Thankfully, for Sid's life's sake, he was able to tell from the driveway that the roof was trash. And sure, he could just patch it, but that would only fix the parts that are currently broken. It won't keep the other areas from causing bed puddles. Unable to follow the simple plan, Rose asks what Sid's trying to say. Not interested in helping their Southsider sleep-deprived friend, Dorothy helps Sid understand by saying even the easy-to-understand plots of murder she wrote have Rose confused. Now, I've never actually seen a full episode of Murder, She Wrote, so I cannot vouch for this joke. I will say, though, that just in the last couple of weeks, I found myself waking up early and Murder, She Wrote is on Hallmark. And if I put it on, I'm asleep within about four and a half minutes. So it's at least comforting. Coco, have you ever watched Murder, She Wrote? Yeah, I used to watch it with my grandmother when I was a young boy. I don't remember anything about it, but I do remember being very comforted by the program. It's a very, she's very, it feels like you're watching a television show that is like made out of grandma. (laughs) That's a great way of putting that. Thank you. It's a whole new technology and they call it virtual reality. They, what, these computer experts? Michael, I'm so excited to be part of this new frontier with you. Your words and imagination that has brought it to life, Jessica. Oh, Michael, it's breathtaking. The realism is incredible. Excuse me, Mr. Salisbury is waiting in the. No servant girl, no hors d'oeuvres. I'll miss those little hot dogs. It's really quite an experience. Technology, environment, experience. Oh, yes, come on. The only thing I can really remember is the music and her like typing and me always thinking. That it was so weird, and as it is on all like shows about these like unusual detectives, that they're around a lot of murders constantly, and like no one ever says anything. No one's like you. You just went for a weekend getaway you know, with your family, and you encountered another murder. Like it would make sense on Murder She Wrote if it was if it was revealed at the end mm-hmm. that it's all been Her. a Truman Show type thing, and they've been oh. like engineering. They're like. We can't believe we were able to do this to you for like 20 years <laughs> and you never questioned you the murders. Yeah, or that she's doing it yeah, so I, that she can sell more books or whatever. Absolutely. If they rebooted Murder, She Wrote, it'd be mur- Murder, She Did. Murder, She Did. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. For those of you in the market, $10,000 is the higher end of getting a roof nowadays. Forget the 26000 that their $10,000 roof would have been worth today. I'm saying Sid was ripping them off. What? The girls now have a decision to make. Do they pay for a new roof one patch at a time, just spending a few hundred bucks here and there until they finally have a new roof? Or do they find a way to cough up the 10000 for an entirely new one? Then Dorothy wonders, what if they can meet in the middle? Get the full roof done for the $10,000, but pay it off in payments. Before she can ask, Sid needs to make a phone call. Overhearing him threaten the person on the phone about payments, they feel slightly less comfortable about asking, especially when they hear that the man he was speaking to in such a scary tone was his own daddy. So a patch job it will be. Following Sid out the door is Sophia, who is headed to the hospital for her volunteer time. Not only does she get fulfillment from doing charitable work, she's trying to find Dorothy an eligible doctor who feels the same. 
On the topic of eligibility, Blanche offers to take the girls to an art show the following night because there are always men there. Telling the girls about the show, she asks if they've ever heard of the artist Jasper de Kimmel. Rose may have, if he ever did any of the very popular in the 70s, velvet art. Velvet artwork has been around since long before, but wasn't popular until the 1950s and especially into the 60s and 70s when the U.S. went velvet and blacklight crazy. I definitely had a couple velvet artworks on my wall, but they were the kind that you got to color. Oh. Did you ever do that? No. It was like a big poster size or, you know, smaller, and you could color it in. I think I had like a unicorn or something. Now, the problem was they came with their own markers, but those markers, I believe there were four of them. They were short, like golf pencil size, and the ones with the white cap that's as long as the pen. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? I do. And then you open it, and the tip of the pen is microscopic. Yes. And there appears to be no ink in the pen. It makes a sound when you try to draw Oh, with God. It. Yeah. Now, imagine bumping that with cheap shedding velvet. It it didn't work. It didn't look good. So once you started coloring, if you bumped to the edge at all, you then started dragging the fabric molecules throughout your your little drawing. It didn't work out is what I'm saying. I leave velvet painting to the professionals. And well, that's why I have a large portrait of a back end of a Spanish galleon going out to sea. You certainly do in a big, beautiful wooden frame. Oh, it's gorgeous. It really is. It It remains in the garage because... Well, it's cursed. (laughs) Trying to not be completely disgusted by her friend's lack of culture, Blanche pulls out the brochure for the show. Pointing to the painting on the front, she goes into great detail about how this non-representational art is using random lines, spots, and colors to represent the planets and nature and the sun. Except that orange part she's pointing to That was meltings of Rose's orange sickle that she was enjoying before she sat it down on the brochure to answer the telephone. As Rose nearly licks the remainder of her treat off the paper, Blanche simply smiles. The only thing one can do as they choke down some crow. There's never been a scenario in my life where a phone rang and I thought to put well, I guess that has an to ice make... cream treat, an exposed ice cream treat down. Who would just put a cream, an ice cream treat just down on a surface of anything? Anything. Besides a bowl. I just wouldn't. I mean, and also she's answering the phone. It's not like the, a two piece where you have to put them. You know, yeah, one, it's a phone. Just grab it with the one hand. Well, you know what? It's Rose. Oh, she can't do both. She's a she's a simple. She's lady. a St. Olafian. Yeah. Saint she's Olafian. like, well, I, I'm eating ice cream, but I need to answer the phone. I have to choose one. Oh, so so what she did was she hung up. The creamsicle. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she I put see. that receiver down. I see. <laughs> la da We're not only at a new location, but it's a fancy schmancy one with artwork and people walking around judging it. As Rose in a stunning blue dress, Blanche in her silver blouse and pants, and Dorothy in white pants with a white blouse adorned with a bow tie because she was always ahead of her time, and a purple cover, along with Sophia in a black dress with shimmering accents, make their way into the space. Blanche is elated to see how beautiful the art and the people are. Sophia is just grateful the people at Kochek didn't force them to leave Dorothy there. Ouch. With that rude comment, Dorothy has had it. 
She feels good. She looks good. And she deserves some damn respect. With a half-hearted apology, Sophia gives loving parenting a shot. She thinks Dorothy looks not only great, but better than some of the gorgeous attendees of the night's event, such as that lady over there. Dorothy appreciates her effort and then points out that the woman she's being compared to is clearly a man. You can't say that. Ah, what a late 80s joke. As part of the festivities, there is unexpectedly and perhaps inexplicably a mime doing some miming. Not something I ever considered to be on par with an art show like this, but hey, I'm not French. I feel like the mime, well, we'll get to that, but the mime and the glass were just kind of filler jokes because they weren't sure what else to do. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. A little bit of a thin episode. (laughs) As thin as that mime. He was svelte. Well, let's talk about him. Actor Derek Lugren is playing that mime. The still-working actor has appeared on The Eric Andre Show, Days of Our Lives, My Name is Earl, and That 70s Show. You could even hire him as a mime for your next event. Unlike myself, Rose is delighted by the presence of the silent clown because it reminds her of an uncle back home. No, he wasn't a coal miner. He was a coal mimer. You see, he hurt his back, and he didn't want to get fired, so he still went down the shaft every morning, and he would mime being a miner. Coal miming is a much better joke than her cousin with the Caesar salad complex, but it's still a long walk in the park for a very little outcome. Approaching the mime while he's working, Sophia inquires about his makeup and why he's wearing it. I guess they didn't have mimes in Sicily or mime Hold for laughter. I, I like that. Thank you. I support that uh, joke. Thank you. Question? It deserves a question mark. <laughs> <laughs> and you would think that Sophia, of all people, wouldn't make a comment about this guy wearing makeup and embarrassing his mother. You know, since she shared an underwear drawer with her cross-dressing son and all. That's when Blanche fills her in on how mimes express themselves via silent art, using only their bodies to tell a story. And no matter what Sophia does or says, the mime will not engage with her. But since Sophia suffers from oppositional defiance disorder, she takes that information as a challenge and whispers to the mime that his zipper is down. As he tries to put that zipper up, he loses his balance off the little performance box he's on and takes a fall to the ground. Unfazed, Sophia walks off, pleased to know she could prove Blanche wrong. While Sophia goes off to torment other artists, the girls stumble upon Jasper's self-portrait, which is a little confusing as it has three noses on the face. Suddenly, a white-haired British man appeared, asking the ladies if they like his work. Nearly losing her breath, Blanche can't believe THE Jasper de Kimmel is standing there with them. THE Jasper de Kimmel is being played by THE Tony Steedman. He was a character actor, hence the 140 credits he earned in his lifetime. He was a huge star in England, thanks to his soap opera work. But in the U.S., we might remember him best from The Avengers, The A-Team, My Two Dads, The Facts of Life, and as the head waiter in Scrooged. Oh, my God. Ah! Bobby, look! Let me save him! Oh, no, that's a baked Alaska, sir. No, that's a dessert. You wouldn't want that, sir. I'm going to have... Have. I'm going to have... Have. I'm going to go have some air. I do love him in that scene in Scrooged 
Oh, yeah. Uh, I think is that when he throw when Bill Murray like throws the water on that waiter? Yeah. So he's like, I thought you were Richard Pryor. <laughs> yeah. 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 So he's out to lunch, I think, with his brother and he starts having all the horrible visions mm-hmm. and he sees, yeah, that the waiter is on fire and uh, makes the Richard Pryor joke because, you know, Richard Pryor caught himself on fire doing drugs. He was also in Days of Our Lives, Doogie Howser, Married with Children, and played Socrates in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which would come out just a few months after this episode. Socrates philosophize with him. All we are is dust in the wind, dude. <gasps> Rose is, well, to no one's surprise, confused about Jasper's artistic choices. She can't understand that even though he painted three noses on his self-portrait and could have given himself any look he wanted, he left a big one. Well, scandalously, those aren't noses. The gallery, as they all do, has mistakenly hung the painting upside down. So those two smaller noses are actually testicles. And the larger one is, well, a different kind of honker. Jasper looks on with not delight, but freakish control as the girls realize they're looking at his Mr. Haha. Being a fan, Blanche can't wait to tell him how much she likes his work. Rose is quite candid here and says that she likes it too, even if she doesn't fully understand it. That's when Jasper reveals how much of a haha he is by saying he isn't surprised she doesn't understand. She has no sense of colors, as shown by her shoe and dress choice. Those are fighting words. Stepping up, literally, to defend her friend, Blanche calls DeKimmel out for his rude remark. Pointing out the shoes in question, Blanche sees that they are black with a black strap and, in her opinion, are worse than the latchets worn by pilgrims. Realizing he went a bit too far, DeKimmel apologizes and says that it's the stress of the event that has him acting like a jerk. To make up for it, he offers the girls a private discussion of another of his paintings. Asking the girls about his brush strokes and the lighting and how they represent money and humor and blah, 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 blah. They are all trying to make themselves seem cultured, so they all agree with him. Too bad it was all just a long con and this guy is still a huge Mr. Ha Ha. He only asked those questions because they weren't in the picture and he wanted to laugh at their stupidity. After a quick scolding where he called the girls ugly and a waste of time, DeKimmel leaves. But not without Rose getting in a quick, oh yeah? Blanche can't believe that the man whose art she not only admired, but she got gussied up to come see would be such a jerk. Dorothy doesn't want his energy to ruin the evening, so she just wants to get back to the festivities. Rose, however, has spotted two men carrying a comically huge piece of glass through a very crowded evening gala event. And unaware that there was glass, Rose assumed they were additional mimers. Running over to join Sophia in the great mime pranks of 88, we then hear a huge crash out of frame. Returning with a sad face and thankfully not a slit artery, Rose, in the same tone of concern she had regarding Father Frank, rhetorically asks about those men being mimes. The girls get the hell out of there, leaving a path of injured mimes and sliced up maintenance guys. Is it just me or were all the mime jokes and the mere idea of the glass being carried through an event really shoehorned in? Like they had this great premise for the episode, but maybe needed three more minutes of fill time? There are some iconic and 
classic humor moments in the show, but they kind of stand out on their own and the other pieces kind of are formed around it a little. But I'm not mad at it. It's a great episode. Being back home isn't less crappy than being at the gallery. Sure, there are 100% less mimes, but there are also several more significant leaks in the roof, even though they asked for a patch job. Running out with towels, Rose in her all-pink jumper lays them around the bucket to keep the water from spreading. When Blanche, in head-to-toe lavender, spots a particularly sentimental towel with nude folks on it from the Cabana Club, she demands it be put away and not used on the ground. Ma'am, what do you have on the ground that a washer couldn't take care of? But in all fairness to Blanche, you don't need to use clean towels for a leak. As Blanche starts to fold the towel, Dorothy, in her haunted house slash Beetlejuice green and black striped shirt and cream pants, has had it. This is an emergency, and if she's so upset, they'll go get a new one another time. But the memories, Blanche demands, they can't be replaced. But Dorothy knows her friend far too well. She doesn't want to waste time hearing about how this towel was the only thing between Blanche's body and the cold, wet sand while she reenacted from here to eternity with all sorts of lovers up and down the Florida coastline. A brief pause. With a soft voice, Blanche explains that, for some reason, she had this crude towel decades ago, and instead of a soft baby blanket, she used the hard beach towel to bring her son Skippy home from the hospital. Another brief pause. Blanche stands firm. Dorothy takes a second to decide if she should apologize or call her bluff. She goes with the latter. Straight up calling Blanche a liar with a firm tone, Blanche folds. You're lying, Blanche. Obviously, she only used the towel as a make-do mattress, but it was spring break. It was Fort Lauderdale, not the coastline. According to the Golden Girls wiki, Skippy was the nickname for Blanche's son, Matthew. He was probably born in 1958. On The Golden Palace, Skippy did make an appearance and was played by blue-collar comedy troupe member Bill Ingvall. Fun fact. Since Blanche can't direct her anger at Dorothy anymore, because she was right, she sends it to Sid, who must have done a shoddy job at the patchwork. But Rose, who must have been given a class on explaining the patchwork situation, since she was so confused the first time, reminds Blanche that they were warned about this, Patching was only going to fix the currently broken parts, not prevent future leaks. They just need to get the $10,000 to get a new roof. Dorothy offers to take some money out of the stock she has. Rose puts up her Christmas club earnings, which is a special account you can set up with your bank. Making deposits monthly, weekly, quarterly, whatever you decide, the goal is to be able to take the savings out in November to have extra cash for the holidays. As nice as that was for Rose to offer, they're only about three weeks out from Christmas, so there's basically nothing available. Rose does have $4,000 in a retirement account, though, which she offers to put in. Blanche agrees that she'll borrow against her life insurance, and that should get them close to the $10,000. Okay, so Rose is in for four, but if the other girls each put in four, they'd be at twelve, and Blanche is the homeowner, so really she would be, you know, legally required to just by the roof. So who's getting away with paying less here? Probably Blanche. The girls are going to call Sid in the morning and officially plan on a replacement roof. Just then, Sophia comes in the front door wearing nothing visible but hopefully more than just a trench coat. Exhausted from, I guess, moving a bucket and then the towel argument, Dorothy can't wait to bombard her mother with how bad her day has been. 
Sophia doesn't really care. You can't just dump your day on her without knowing how she's feeling. Great, y'all had a bad day. It wasn't like she was having such a good day that under her trench coat, she was hiding the priest who started in Nebraskan churches before founding the orphanage and education group Boys Town, Father Flanagan. I'm not sure what would be fun about having a priest under your coat. Continuing through the living room, Sophia decides to put her wet umbrella in the already wet bucket before sharing just how bad her day was at the hospital. The only day worse than today was that time a doctor left a sponge in her after getting her gallbladder removed. Today was awful because Sophia had to work with a horribly rude patient. Sure, it would suck to have only two weeks left to live, but you don't have to be nasty to everyone about it. Dorothy has more sympathy than Sophia, saying she should show some grace. That's when Sophia drops a bomb. While the girls know how nasty this patient can be, they met him at the gallery. It's THE Jasper de Kimmel! (laughs) Hearing this news, Blanche's sympathy goes out the window. Why, when an artist dies, their art can double, if not triple, in value. That kind of math has Rose almost understanding what Blanche is saying. What she gets is that Jasper will have a windfall of money coming his way after he dies. Dorothy's really proud of her for trying. What Blanche is really saying is that there's going to be a de Kimmel auction going on that weekend. And knowing what they know, they could make the investment and see it come to fruition pretty quickly. They'll not only be able to buy a roof, but they'll have so much money they can get whatever they want. Dorothy cannot sign on for this plan. This man is dying. That would be blood money. Blanche plays along, agreeing to the lack of morality. Rose feigns that they would hate themselves for doing it. Sophia wants to know what time the bidding begins. Blanche tells her at 8, and Dorothy has been swayed, suggesting that they get there by 7.30. Later that night, Dorothy finds Sophia enjoying a cup of tea at the kitchen table, which surprises her. Joking that she escaped her room, Sophia asks if it's okay with her, Prime Minister Botha. This is a reference to the Prime Minister of South Africa, Botha, who was, in a word, terrible. He was so supportive of the Nazis, he was nearly kicked out of the military. Nearly. Once he was the Prime Minister, he did not good things when it came to the people of color in the country. Dorothy couldn't sleep either because of a nightmare. And no, it wasn't her recurring dream of being a spinster who is sent to a retirement home where she is never visited. Well, that's because that wasn't Dorothy's dream. That was Sophia's life when she was living at Shady Pines, which Dorothy still defends. Sure, it was a nice place, just like how the Attica Correctional Facility in New York is known for its tennis courts. It isn't. Attica is known more for the 1971 riots that took the lives of 34 prisoners and 10 officers. It is also known for being maximum security, housing inmates that struggle with disciplinary issues and need to be removed from other prisons. It is notoriously the home of Son of Sam, John Lennon's murderer, and many a mobster. I will have the gabagool. When Rose crashes the party, Dorothy tells her they're holding a seance to try to speak with Liberace, who had died very recently, in fact, on February 4th, 1987. The delight that has come over Rose's face at the idea is quickly washed away by Dorothy's frustration towards her insomnia. Rose's reasons for not sleeping are legit. She sounds like me when I wake up confused about a tummy ache after an evening of munching. Rose is being kept awake by the handful of sprinkle-covered chocolate chips she ate, a.k.a. snowcaps. She also ate some Oreos, of course, and we've already discussed their stimulating nature. 
She also had a devil dog, which is like if a ding dong didn't have a chocolate coating and was more of a flat sandwich shape. She also had a ho-ho, which she then cut up and put into a fruit cocktail. (laughs) That's gross sounding even to me, and I have very low standards when it comes to cake-like treats. I think it's really the fruit mixture and the syrupy juices. That's bad. Or like a holiday fruit cake, but instead of whatever the cake is, it's ho-ho cake. Mm -mm. And that sounds yucky. Imagine if you had a cake-sized ho-ho and maybe in the middle you had some raspberries or cherries or something. Yeah. That's a different ballgame. I feel like fruit cocktail is sort of like... I don't mess with fruit It's just lo- I feel like it's like, like lower end fruit or something. Oh, yeah. It's just like not like... Fake fruit, weird syrup. Mm-mm. For those I mean, reasons, I'm out. Yeah. Give me some, some little tangerine slices. Oh, yeah. And some, and some, some liquid. <laughs> Dorothy isn't surprised that sleep evaded Rose. She is surprised she didn't try to kill the mayor of San Francisco, though. This is based on what is referenced as the Twinkie defense. I actually covered this story on my other podcast, Murder in the Rain, for a Patreon page. The shortened version goes as such. George Moscone was elected as the mayor of San Francisco. Harvey Milk was elected as a supervisor. He was one of the first out politicians, so it was a very big deal. He was focused on bringing fairness and equality to the city. Elected at the same time as Harvey was former police officer Dan White. He was the only vote against Harvey's discrimination ordinance. It was believed that Dan and Harvey had had disagreements about a juvenile detention facility in Dan's district. A year into the job, Dan complained about pay and resigned. He then changed his mind and wanted his job back. But by then, his constituents were already like, he actually doesn't represent us. During this time, in November of 1978, San Francisco was reeling from the loss of those in Jonestown, members of the People's Temple, which had been founded in San Francisco. 900 people died in that tragedy, including California Representative Leo Ryan. Deciding to go with another candidate to replace Dan, Mayor Marsconi was going to make his announcement on November 27th. Just 30 minutes before the announcement, Dan White made his way into City Hall, somehow bypassing metal detectors bringing in a gun, and getting past the unusually high number of police officers on site that day. Making his way to the mayor's office, the two argued before Mayor Marsconi was shot in the chest, shoulder, and the head twice. Reloading the gun, the one that had been issued to him when he was a police officer, Dan made his way from the mayor's office to the hallway where he encountered Harvey. The two went into Dan's old office, where he then shot Harvey five times with hollow-point bullets. Mayor Marsconi was 49, Harvey Milk was 48. Dan White turned himself in. The city was devastated. Making matters worse, the police were on the side of their brother, wearing free Dan White shirts the next day. Then came the trial, where no members of the LGBTQIA2S plus community were on the jury. The defense blamed the stress of the will-he-or-won't-he-get-his-job-back drama as the cause for his diminished capacity. Arguing about his state of mind, The health-conscious 32-year-old Vietnam veteran explained he had been so stressed about work that he went on a junk food binge, giving birth to the Twinkie defense, saying basically he had had a bunch of Twinkies along with lack of sleep and was overstressed, which led to his violent decision. Unsurprisingly, Dan was found guilty, not of the first-degree murder he was accused of, but of voluntary manslaughter. He was given seven years. He served five. 
The night of the verdict elicited the White Knight riots, leading to marches, vandalism, and raids on gay bars from the cops. Luckily for all public officials in the Miami area, it appears Rose can handle her sweets. Speaking of sweet, a delighted Blanche has just swooped into the kitchen off a candy cane cloud and she can't believe how well she slept. When she's told it's only 4 a.m. and it's still dark out, she is shocked, just shocked. She's also horrified, just horrified. Why, if she doesn't get eight hours in her bed, Sophia finishes her sentence by saying, what, all the Iranian men in town will tell their cousins to not bother coming over? You can't say that. Now, is this an oh boy because she mentioned Iranians, or does it just show that Blanche is an equal opportunity lover? It feels like an oh boy. You definitely oh boyed Coco. I'm still oh boyin'. <laughs> you can't say that. <laughs> and no, that's not what will happen if Blanche doesn't get her sleep. She'll just be a cranky beehole all day. Right now, though, she's actually concerned because she usually sleeps so well. Dorothy has the answer as to why she's not sleeping. I can understand Blanche forgetting what it feels like to have a conscience, but I'm surprised Rose isn't like, oh, I'm awake because I'm jacked out of my mind on sugar. Dorothy appreciates how consistent Rose is. Rose gives the credit to the real heroes of her consistency, oat bran breakfast. After a moment of silence, the girls get back to talking about the situation. The real culprit for the insomnia is Jasper and how they know that they're trying to make money off of a man who's dying. Jerk or not, it still feels wrong. Blanche feels bad. Rose and Dorothy feel creepy. Sophia feels Sicilian. Bring in the gabagool. There's nothing the girls can do about Jasper. He's sick. Nothing they say or do will change that. It's not like they can give him the much-needed blood transfusion, which Sophia knows about because that Biscayne hospital has some real chatty doctors that are not concerned with HIPAA violations. From what she's heard, Sophia thinks that Jasper will be plant food in just a matter of days. The audience gives a funny reaction to this, like you can't even talk that way about a fake character, a fake jerk character. For now, it's time we go to Sardinia in 1942. Sardinia is 450 miles from Sicily, which is why Blanche is confused as she thought all of the Sicilian stories were, well, from Sicily. What, Sophia's not allowed to go on a weekend getaway? Picture it. Sophia was at the caper factory, which I guess is where they take the buds off of the caper bush, and she was going through her piccata period, piccata being meat, usually veal or chicken, which is sliced, put in flour, cooked, then served with butter, caper, and lemon sauce. After a moment, it's clear Sophia doesn't have a direction for this story, as pointed out by Dorothy. Yeah, well, it's hard to have a story with a moral that connects to the situation they're currently in, and she had hoped that, being 4 a.m., no one would really notice her nonsense. However, if anyone's interested, she can share a story about a monkey in Morocco, but she'd rather save that for when they need something regarding lust. But here's the real deal. Okay, it sucks that this guy, even as a jerk, is dying. But if they don't buy the painting and make the money off the situation, there will be other people at the auction who will. So they better all get what they can. It's the post-Reagan, first George Bush era. Everything is about me. And look at where that has gotten us. Hooray. A recently unearthed audio recording of Ronald Reagan from 1971 has raised questions about the former president's views on race. On the morning of October 26, 1971, 
Reagan called up President Nixon at the White House. Their 12-minute chat was captured on President Nixon's White House tapes and was released in full by the National Archives just last month. It includes Governor Reagan using a racist slur to describe a group of African diplomats at the United Nations. For historians, the audio of Reagan's reaction to that moment is a new data point. So my reaction was a little bit of surprise, but not shock. Historian and Harvard associate professor Leah wright Rigur is thinking of the long debate over Reagan's view of black America. Under Reagan, African-Americans saw poverty and incarceration rise. Historians have debated why. Now, we actually have a broader context about Ronald Reagan, one wherein he is using racial slurs and that he is, you know, he is talking about black people, in, uh, in this case Africans, in a pejorative and negative and regressive sense. So now what we have to do is reconcile that prejudice with Ronald Reagan's actual policies and programs and the things that he did on the ground. And while he was reluctant to establish a national holiday to celebrate Martin Luther King, Reagan did ultimately sign legislation to do so. Reagan and his strategists and his advisors figure out that one of the most politically powerful and insulating things that they can do is actually use the language and symbolism of inclusivity and tolerance even as they are having different kind of conversations with audiences like uh, white Southerners around states' rights that have traditionally held racialized and discriminatory uh, meaning. We have somebody like Lyndon Johnson on tape saying all kinds of awful things about, uh, about race, saying racist things, saying discriminatory things, saying sexist things. We also know that during his presidency, he's instrumental in really forcing Congress to pass the most comprehensive civil rights bill the nation had ever seen. And so all of those things can be true and coexist but at the same time. Heck of a wife. <laughs> Go. Apparently all the men in Hollywood, they were asked who gave the best They were like, Nancy Reagan. Nancy Reagan? That pinched Back at the art gallery, which has since been filled with chairs, a stage, and an auctioneer, but sadly, there are no mimes, we find three open seats in the front row. Rose in a light seafoam green dress is next to Dorothy, who's in black pants, a white blouse, and a bright blue sparkly blazer, who's next to Blanche in a darker, greener version of Rose's dress. Before getting started, Dorothy reminds them that they are the only ones that know about the health situation, so they need to play it cool as to not raise any suspicions. Overhearing a newly arriving couple walking behind her, Rose picks up that they're concerned about Jasper's absence, as he is always in attendance at his auctions. Following through with Dorothy's reminder, she turns to them and says, Well, it's not like he's not here because he's dying. Dorothy almost gets upset about it, but she knows that that would be like yelling at a puppy. Playing the concerned woman was Renetta Scott. She also appeared on the A-Team, Highway to Heaven, Dynasty, Murder, She Wrote, Falcon Crest, My Two Dads, Tales from the Crypt, Amen, Knott's Landing, Star Trek, Next Generation, Chaplin, Red Shoe Diaries, My Best Friend's Wedding, Everybody Loves Raymond, Stepfather 2, Make Room for Daddy, and yes, La La. The auction has begun with the first item, a naked statue. Playing the auctioneer is Colin Hamilton, 
who also appeared in Matlock, Webster, Knott's Landing, Heart to Heart, Flashdance, Chips, Eight is Enough, Wonder Woman, All in the Family, Dark Shadows, and The Betty White Show. Gazing at the artwork, Rose wonders aloud why old statues are always of naked men. Blanche, as a holder of a Master's of Fine Arts degree and many a man in her own hand, has knowledge of the subject. The Greeks and Romans celebrated the male form, the muscles, the loins, the buttocks. All of this hot talk has her holding a Master's in Debate team, if you know what I'm saying. Oh. <laughs> I do. (laughs) (laughs) Sharing the heat of the butt talk, Rose mistakenly uses her paddle to wave herself, inadvertently making a bid on the statue. To show her how it happened, Dorothy waves her own, upping the bidding to 30. And we ain't talking about dollars here. We're talking $30,000. Oh, I mean, I guess we are talking dollars, but we're talking a lot more than just $30. All of this bidding and money leaves Rose shocked. How can this little wave cost $30,000? Well, that last one just cost her 40. The only way they can get out of all of this is for someone else to bid 45, which thankfully happens. Well, it technically should have been 45, but in the episode it was 40. And we've got a little plot whoopsie here because the auctioneer takes the $35,000 bid and then the girls get to talking so we don't really hear him and when he comes back, he again takes someone's bid and it's 35,000. Plot whoopsie. Using the $10,000 they've put together for the roof, they're ready to bid up to $10,000 for the art piece. While it is a small painting, as the auctioneer points out, it will surely be worth more in due time. Such as tomorrow, Rose says, forgetting about that whole being cool about the dying thing. Dorothy wants to be mad, but she knows keeping secrets isn't exactly Rose's strongest suit. Getting back to the task at hand, she asks that everyone be chill so it doesn't seem obvious that they are desperate to get that painting. So with a very calm, cool demure raising her paddle, Dorothy starts the bidding at 5000 JK, when the auctioneer opens the bidding, the three of them excitedly hold up the paddles at the same time. It's a very, I'm the slut to the auctioneer's Burt Reynolds. Now looking for $6,000, another bidder joins. Bragging about her skills, Dorothy finally does give a chilled-out bid. Another stranger bumps it to $7,000. Blanche suavely lifts her paddle for $7,500. Now looking for eight, it's not a stranger that raises the price, but sugar-addicted Rose. At least she did it in a cool, calm way. This starts a momentary fight with the girls. Arms and paddles are flying. Dorothy raises the price to $8,500. Blanche to $9,000. Freezing, the auctioneer closes the bidding and the girls have won their painting. Finding a payphone in the hallway, the girls call the hospital to give Sophia the great news. They still feel bad about the whole betting on his death thing, so they want to send him flowers. Sophia tells them they can send flowers to themselves. In a rare act that shows just how kind Sophia actually is deep down, she learned that she was one of the rare blood matches for Jasper, and she was able to bring him back from the brink of death. In a smart move, Sophia didn't tell the girls she was the one who saved the guy. Going back to the phone, we see the receiver swinging in the air as Dorothy has passed out. Back at home, the girls are all on the couch looking at their new painting, which could ironically be ruined by some of the leaking roof they were trying to fix with it. 
As they stare, Blanche tries to make it sound not so horrible. It gets better the more you look at it, which is what Sophia tells herself every time she watches 30-something. hey What's important for Rose is that nothing they did was bad. They simply bought a painting. Sophia saved a life, even if it was the life of a crabby, no-good jerk of a man. Speaking of, Sid has arrived. As he continues to blow his nose, he makes his way inside, announcing that he and his crew are ready to get the new roof on. That's when Dorothy breaks the news. There won't be a roof installation today because they don't have the money for it. In an unexpected twist, Sid knows art, which is why he's confused that they can't afford a new roof when they can afford a Jasper de Kimmel. Pointing to the painting, Dorothy starts out by talking trash. Before she goes on, Sid starts to say how he's always wanted to own a painting of Jasper's. Hearing an opportunity, Blanche starts to make a deal, a new roof in exchange for the painting. But Sophia hears an even better deal in her own mind. Laying on the schmaltz of how much she loves the painting and how much it means to her, Rose tries to stop her, but she goes on. Sid wants to make an offer, but he doesn't want to offend Sophia. Too late, his tacky shirt already has. Still, she wants to hear what he has to say, so he offers, okay, a new roof for the painting. She agrees to that with an additional $2,500 in cash. As Sid argues the price, she gets mad and says, all right, now it's $3,000. The girls watch on as Sophia, the real artist, goes to work. We don't get a final answer, but we can only assume that the girls got a roof, Sophia got at least three grand, and DeKimmel got what was coming to him. I think Sophia did a roof goof. I think she did. Sid. Yeah. Roof goof. <laughs> Coco, this was your first viewing of this episode. What were your thoughts? I would call it an average episode. Mm. Maybe slightly above average because there were a couple of really funny moments in it. Yeah. Um, I love any time Rose is sort of seems like she's been recently hit on the head or something. <laughs> this one, she she's playing real slow this episode. Yeah, and I mean, I do like the the, the recurring bit of her having the Caesar salad guy and right. then the mimer thing. But that's, it's a little, it's getting stretched a bit. <laughs> <laughs> she's sort of, I mean, she's just, over time, characters like that often have to become more of, uh, more of that. Yeah. And I'm not sure it, it was fun. I do love ones where they're all in something together, where there's not really that secondary plot line. I mean, I feel like the roof kind of was, but it was also the main plot. And I really like that when they're all in it together, because then you get the best of everybody. But yes, Rose does have other times, actually, in just a few episodes that are like really hard hitting and not quite so affable. I think the roofer character could have been stronger and the um, their like adversary adversarial relationship that they have over the course of the episode could have been there could have been more. Oh, I think. yeah. Mm -hmm. More more back and forth with him. Yeah, mean. just missed opportunities. And that yeah. is he's a very funny actor. I mean, yeah. honestly, that that scene in Poltergeist where he's eating a bunch of baked beans <laughs> off a plate is so, so good. He's such a great neighbor. Yeah. In that movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it was just kind of a little. Well, I've said it before. I've said it again. It was a thin episode a yeah. bit. Well, get ready to see the auction scene again and the towel scene again. There were several moments that do make it into future clip shows. Well, that is exciting. Yeah. <laughs> and as we all know, I love clip shows. <laughs> it's true. Well, just wait for the end of this season. 
And then I'm going to throw to a clip of me saying that I like clip shows. Maybe <laughs> this clip of me saying, I love clip shows. I love clip shows. I absolutely love them. Money can make us do crazy things. Lie, cheat, steal, buy art. It all comes down to how you acquire your money and if doing so meets your values. If you're fine not paying employees, letting people die, and destroying the earth with pollution, then you too can be as successful as someone like Elon Musk. For those who have morals and stuff, they might have a hard time making money off of someone's death. Like how Coco and I struggle with our other podcast. We are making money off of the worst experience of people's lives. So we try our best to be aware of that and do what we can to counter it, like working with families, holding events, donating, so on and so forth. Like the girls did, sometimes you have to reevaluate how far you're willing to go to get what you want, while making sure you do it in a way that doesn't hurt others. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when Blanche gets googly eyes for a new man in Blind Date. Yeah, was that a, well, uh, do I need to keep going? What were we talking about? Diarrhea? <laughs> Usually. <laughs> Producing it, as well as hot shart, heart charts. that's you, your story. <laughs> hey. <laughs> hey! You made the mistake, and you're roasting me! <laughs> Look out! I, I gotta get that bean scene in there. Poltergeist bean scene! <laughs> bean scene. Scene bean. Sean Bean, Lord of is, the Rings. Is he a poltergeist? Mm-hmm. Celeb gossip. <gasps> it's a secret. Yeah. We have, <laughs> we have no liability because we're just saying we're making it up. <laughs> Losers. <laughs> Blind item, Andre Brower has pika. Who? <laughs> Andre Brower from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He's Captain Holt. He has Pike. Nine-Nine? I don't he, know. Oh, you're no. just saying. <laughs> I'm just making up rumors. That's the go-to rumor. <laughs> yes. hey, did you hear that Andre Brower has Pika? I heard he has Pika. Did I ever tell you about the kid I had that swallowed a golf pencil? You know, it didn't sound like off topic, and it wasn't, <laughs> it, it, but it did. <laughs> trying to think of some hot gossip about the Charmin bears. I hear that the reason Clifton Collins Jr. was in the movie Jockey is because he eats horses. <laughs> but you didn't hear it from me. Blind item. <laughs> Nick Nolte punched a goose. That's probably true. Definitely. Some sort of bird. Fabio did it with his face. <laughs> I only said it so you could have that image because I know how much you love it. <laughs> I do. The image of beautiful Fabio in a, in a white open-throated shirt with blood splattered on his face. Is it his blood? Is it goose blood? It's both. And the, the, the women sitting next to him on the roller coaster are like laughing, having a great time about his nose explosion. Just the odds of that, the odds of that car, the odds of him being there for this opening or whatever thing. The timing, the, just it's so looks, many amazing things. You know, he doesn't look hurt he looks mad at the bird yes he looks very angry at a goose you ruined my good time goose bring me that goose <laughs>
I bet he has goose dinner for Thanksgiving and Christmas just to spite them. Yeah. He does it at like a goose place. And I'm assuming. <laughs> <laughs> Where they I'm live? A- Where do goose live? The lake. Geese. Oh, that's the lake. <laughs> you go down to the lake, there's geese. <laughs> well, are there not? I don't know. I don't know where the lake is. And I'm only assuming he celebrates <laughs> Thanksgiving because, you know, he's our neighbor. Does he make wine or something here? I don't know what he does. Except goes to Home Depot. Well, you know what? You keep reading. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Google what up with Fabio. <laughs> Thank you. Fabio, Oregon. All your blind items. She's still stunning on... Oh. She's still stunting on that? <laughs> what is that? Is that a song? Stunting on my daddy? Stunting... Stunting. I'll look it up. Please look up stunting on my daddy. I think that's what it is. And I'll be stunting like my daddy. Stunting like my daddy. Stunting like my daddy. I be stunting like my daddy. On the young stunner. Stunting like my daddy. Stunting like my daddy. I be stunting like my daddy. The minds of Birdman and Lil Wayne. Oh, of course. And let's hear what it sounds like. They're making the motorcycles. Just ride on the front wheel, stunting like their daddies. I had a mean grandma. I didn't need to invite a British mean grandma into my life. And if anyone else out there doesn't like Angela Lansbury, if you watch, I think, Death on the Nile from 1981 or 78. Oh, my God, yes. uh, You can see her get shot in the head. Violently. Graphically. Explosively bloody. At close range for an Agatha Christie Christie movie. Yeah, it was pretty shocking. It's like Mrs. Doubtfire's voice, but it's nice. Yeah. Mrs. Doubtfire scares me. <laughs> Give us the R-rated version, you sons of bitches. Mrs. Doubtfire was R-rated? Because it was just him riffing. Oh, I bet it's So great. they've said that they have like an R-rated cut, but it was so raunchy that they couldn't do it. Can you? Um, oh, my God. Because it was he just was... him riffing in that outfit for days. Yeah. Well, I think, too, he would probably have gone into like some sort of weird oh, state where yeah. he was he was Mrs. Doubtfire. Cocained out he British forgot, woman. He forgot his yeah. sense of self. He would look in the mirror and see an old lady. <laughs> yes. That would be hard to do. Yeah. And he's a clown, you know, mm-hmm. in a positive way. Yeah. He couldn't stop. So it's what the people want. Give oh, us the those R-rated. days must have been long days. Of yes. Set. Fun and then just like. Yeah. Robin, <laughs> the Please. kids need to leave. Blind item. Bill Pullman once farted on a sandwich. George C. Scott fell down once. <laughs> Wet puddle surprise. Yeah, I wouldn't expect to see it. And when I did see it, I wasn't happy to be seeing it. Andrew, that'd be Andre. Andre. What happened to Andre? <laughs> That's gross sounding, even to me. And I have a, oh, thurgle. Thurgle. Throat gurgle. Throat gurgle is a thurgle. Preferably orange juice. I'm not sure if I should write it slurp or slorp. Mm, slorp. Yeah, slurp, slorp, slorp. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always